Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. So grateful to have uh, Pastor Steve Dighton with us last weekend to lead us in the study of God's Word and out at Reach Church DeSoto, Pastor Ryan, so grateful for him and grateful for Reach Church joining us this morning and all those watching via our live stream. We're grateful to have you today. Uh, Before we begin, I want to encourage you to be in prayer for a small team from our church that's going to be leaving tomorrow to head down to Nicaragua. And so we've got a mission team. This is kind of the beginning of our efforts to begin to resume our mission teams and international trips this next year. So they're kind of a test case. This is a small group to go and See how it works getting out of our country and getting back into our country in the midst of all that's going on. And I just want to encourage you to pray for them as they leave. We do have prayer cards back at the Welcome Center. But you keep Pastor Kelly and Brian and Mark and Kyle in your prayers as they plan to head out tomorrow and then come back this week. Well, Revelation chapter 10, uh, we're picking back up. You remember Uh, We've had the six trumpets of God's judgment, and they have brought enormous devastation to the earth. And they have brought us right up to the very end of the tribulation period. Uh, With the seventh trumpet in Revelation 16, we get six more bowls of judgment, and it's the finishing of the wrath of God. But uh, but I just wanted you to see this, as I shared with you, as we move through, the events come more quickly, so... As those seals came, it was one, two, three, four. It's kind of this overview, moving kind of slowly. Then you get to the trumpets, it begins to pick up pace. And then when you get to the seventh trumpet and what will be those seven bowls, now it's going to move very quickly. As we get into Revelation 16 and we see the seven bowls of judgment poured out, I really believe those seven bowls of judgment occur over a matter of days maybe weeks, but it's going to be very, very quick. Because when you think about it, when you get to that point of the tribulation period, it can't last long. There's no more water. There's no more ocean life. There's no more vegetation. It is total devastation and complete destruction. But here in chapter 10, we begin another interlude. So remember again, we talked about in Revelation, you have chronology But then you will have interludes. We already looked at one of them in chapter 7. You'll remember when we looked at the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. So we're, we're moving chronologically, but then periodically we'll stop and we'll have these interludes. And God will give us biographical information about certain players within the tribulation period. As we come to chapter 10, this is going to begin a lengthy interlude, uh, an interlude that, that will last from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 15 when we'll pick up with the bowls of judgment. And, and really, this is one of my favorite parts of Revelation because we get a picture. God gives us some biographical information about believing Israel, about unbelieving Israel, uh, about the the beast, the dragon, and Satan, and his kingdom, and false religion. And so we're going to be looking at those things over the next coming weeks. But here in chapter 10, we're going to see a strong angel. Uh, It says another angel, and we're going to talk about the identity of that angel in a moment. But through this angel, God is going to give us a picture of his abounding 
patience, of the, the amazing patience of God. As I was studying this, Exodus 34, uh, verse 5 came to mind. And you remember there, it's God's self-declaration to Moses about who he is. And it says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness in truth. God is telling us who he is. And it says, God is compassionate. Anybody here grateful today that God is amazingly compassionate? Um, that he is a God who feels that we are finitely what he is infinitely. And so just as we feel, we have a God who feels, a God who loves, a God who feels wrath, a God who feels jealousy. He is a compassionate God. And he also tells us that he is gracious that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it has treated him, I would have kicked the wretched, vile thing to pieces. Isn't that what we would have done? But God is gracious. He tells us not only is he gracious, but he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. It's a reminder that God does not act recklessly. God does not move impulsively. That, that like us, we can have moments where we lose control. You ever get so angry, you kind of pushed, and then you just lose control. That's us, not God. God feels wrath, but he's never in loss of control. He's perfectly patient abounding in loving kindness. And even here in Revelation, after all that we've seen, after all the demonstrations of God's glory and his majesty and his power, what did it say in chapter 9, verse 21? In fact, it says it twice. They still will not repent. And so we're going to see that God is patient, but we're also going to see, as God declares in Exodus 34, yes, he's He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in loving kindness. But guess what? He's also abounding in truth, meaning he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That you almost see here in the tribulation period that man is testing God. Man is seeing how far he can push God. You, you ever do that as a kid, push your parents? See how far you can go? I did. Every now and then, you know what I'd hear? Don't make me stop this car. <laughs> Occasionally, I know, maybe not as much today, but I heard it. Don't make me get the belt. You ever hear that as a kid? And then if mama used my full legal name, Chad Mark, then you knew you'd done. She'd lost all sanity, and it was over. We push God. Man pushes God. You ever hear this? There's a day coming. This passage speaks of the overwhelming compassion, the overwhelming grace, the overwhelming patience of God. God will be patient to the very last moment. And yet he's also a God who one day will delay no longer. He's a God of truth. You don't push God. You, you don't presume upon his grace and his love. 
So with that in mind, let's, let's just pray and then we'll work our way through this passage this morning. Fathers, we come before your word. We just are so grateful today of your abounding grace and patience. And God, I pray that you would speak to us again today with how patient you are with us. But God, I pray that we would also be reminded that you're a God who abounds in truth and justice. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they wouldn't presume even a moment longer upon your grace and your patience, but they would turn to you. And God, I pray for those of us that do know you, that knowing your impending judgment, we would be compelled to persuade men and women to trust Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 10. I saw another angel, strong angel, coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Strong angel. There's a lot of conjecture about the identity of this angel And quite frankly, as I've studied, I'm not certain uh, that I can come and say, as others do, that this angel is Christ. I, I have difficulty with that. But as we'll see in the descriptors given to this angel, I think at the very least we can say that this angel is a God-like, a Christ-like representative. Because in almost every descriptor, We find descriptors that are often associated with Christ or with God. And so as we read this, I think it's it's safe to say that we're talking about a godlike representative. But look at what it says of this angel that is clothed with the cloud. In Daniel chapter 7, you'll remember that Christ, it was said of him that he he would come on the clouds of heaven In Revelation chapter 1, we've already studied Christ there is coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a picture of Christ's glorious reign and his divine authority. And then we see that there's a rainbow upon his head. You'll remember in Revelation chapter 4, there was a rainbow around the throne of God. And a rainbow is always a covenantal sign of God's faithfulness. That God is a God who keeps his promises. That every time it rains, after the rain, there is a rainbow to remind us that God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. And then it says his face was like the sun. In Revelation chapter 1, Christ's face shone like the sun. Often in in scripture, the sun is a picture of God. That the sun is so bright and so glorious that you can't look upon it. You can't get close to it, but at the same time, from the sun, we get light and life and warmth. That's a picture of God, that God is far more glorious than we can possibly imagine. And yet from God, we receive every good thing in our life. In fact, it was James who said, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow. And you'll remember the ironic blessing of number 625, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
His face was like the sun. He's glorious and gracious. And then feet like pillars of fire. Fire is a picture of holiness and judgment. That our God is an all-consuming fire. He is just and holy. And he judges. The picture here, as we see of this angel, is of God's terrifying glory. That he's a God who is glorious. He's a God who is an all-consuming fire. He is just, he is holy, and he judges. And then in verse 2, it says he had in his hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So he's got a, a book, a little book that's open. Do we have a book in Revelation that was sealed up but has now been opened We talked about it in Revelation 5. It's the seven-sealed book that has now been opened. And who was the only one who was worthy to open that book and break its seals? Jesus Christ. And remember, what was that book? That book is the completion of God's purposes and promises. It is the finality of his judgment. And so here is this strong angel and his feet are on the land and on the sea. It's just a picture of his sovereignty. That he is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the heavens. He's sovereign over the earth and the sea. He's Lord of all. What did Jesus say after his resurrection at the end of Matthew before his ascension? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That Christ has now claimed through his death and resurrection the kingdoms of this world for himself. The nations are his. The earth and everything in it is his. The sea and everything in it is his. He has all authority and he reigns. And then it says in verse 3, he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. So now this strong angel representing the power and the glory of God, speaks and his voice is like a lion. Who in Scripture is described as a lion? Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here he roars like a lion. You know, I spent some time studying this week a lion and its roar. Why does a lion roar? A lion roars to let you know that you have invaded his territory. And he roars to let you know that he comes to take life. It is said of a lion's roar that you can hear a lion roar five miles away. If you're in Africa, in those fields, a lion roars you can hear five miles away. Uh, I was reading it said, if you hear, if you're walking through the tall grass of Africa and you hear a lion roar, that is probably the last sound you will hear. And then you are dinner. Here we see he speaks with the roar of a lion and the peals of thunder. When you hear thunder, what does it tell you? It tells you a storm is coming. Do you see the picture here? This lion is roaring. The thunder is coming. The picture here is of Christ in all his power and all his glory and all his majesty. 
The one who reigns and who judges is now coming to pour out as the impending seventh trumpet sounds and the bowls of judgment come. We're right here on the precipice of the finality of God's judgment being poured out on the the earth. And there's kind of a warning through his roar and his speaking that it's coming, it's impending, it's upon you. You know, as I read this, and I mentioned this chapter so many times, but to me this is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. That the nations rage and the peoples devise a, a vain thing and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. What have we seen throughout the tribulation period? They've mocked Christ. They've mocked his rule. They've spurned his love even as he's demonstrated his power. That is a picture of the world from all eternity but again seen in the tribulation period. But then what does it say about God in Psalm 2? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then what does it say? Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury. I think this right here in Revelation 10 is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. That finally God speaks and he terrifies them in his fury. And if you know Psalm 2, you know what comes after that. Then you get Jesus who says, surely I'll tell the decree of my Lord. For he said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them like a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That this world is waiting on one word of Christ who will say now and the bowls of judgment will be poured out upon the earth. But notice something amazing. We see this building to the precipice of God pouring out his judgment. But notice something amazing in verse 4. Look at it. It says, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. I think it's something powerful we can't miss. The, 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 the thunder of heaven roars and the final bowls of judgment are about to be poured out and a voice from heaven says, what, stop, seal them up, don't write them. As heaven roars and the judgment of God is about to fall and, and John thinks, this is one of those moments I gotta write down and he, I kind of picture him, he's fumbling for his pencil and then all of a sudden he hears a voice from heaven saying, stop, don't write it. And listen, don't let anyone ever say that God is not patient. Let no one ever say that God is impetuous. Let no one ever say that God loses his temper or flies off the handle. Let no one ever say that God is reckless. Because even here, just before, moments before, the finality of his wrath is poured out on his earth, what does God say? Stop. Seal it up. Don't don't, don't write it. Listen, accuse God of whatever you want, but don't accuse God of not being perfectly patient. Even to the very last moment, I was telling Faith as I was writing this, I thought, uh, the old Maxwell House coffee, good to the last drop. God is patient to the very last moment. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.16 said, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example 
for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul said, I'm the test case for the patience of God. If anybody could have pushed God too far, it was me. And yet God used me as a test case because God was able to take me, a God hater, and turn me into a son. That God was able to take me, a murderer of Christians, and make me a missionary. To let the entire world know that anyone can come to him. That he extends his grace and his mercy and his hand of patience to all who will turn to him. You can be a thief on the cross. And in your final hours, turn to Jesus and just say, remember me. And you get the assurance of heaven. Exodus 34, after that verse I read, it says, he keeps his loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity. That word thousands, most translations will say thousands of generations, meaning he's so patient. It almost seems as though his patience would go on forever. That's the perfect patience of God. Meaning today, even today, no matter how far you've gone or what you've done, the patience of God continues and he's willing to forgive all iniquity for those who turn to him in faith and repentance. You know, the, the way I picture this, I, I, just as I try to get my finite little mind around these ideas, I picture God knowing in his patience he knows he's just and he has to punish. He has to punish sin. He has to pour out his wrath. But he's reluctant. It's almost like right at the very end when he knows I'm about, I know what I'm about to do and I know I have to do but what, what I gotta do because I'm just but I'd like to look one more time and see if one more person wouldn't turn to me. That's the perfect patience of God. Then look at verse five. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. That verse six, in your scripture, it should be in all caps. Indicating that it is an Old Testament scripture. It's Exodus 20 at the beginning of the law of God. The beginning of the Ten Commandments. God says, I'm the God of all creation. I'm the God of all who you see. I spoke it into existence. That I'm far more powerful and holy than you can possibly imagine. And so this angel swears by God who's all powerful and sovereign. Who made everything and says essentially, you don't refuse him. Don't do chapter 9, verse 21. Don't refuse to repent because you don't do that and get away with it. There will be, it says, delay no longer. How patient is God? He's patient to the very end. Even here at the very end, stop. Don't, don't write it, not just yet. Even to the very end, how long has he delayed? How long has he been patient? All the way back from Genesis 3. Since the very beginning of sin, listen, what God could have done is just quit it all right there. 
The fact of the matter is, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God due to the sin of Adam and Eve. We all deserve death and hell. That is God being just. And yet God has, since Genesis 3, been patient and extended his hand of loving kindness and grace. But the message has always been what? That there is a day coming. There is a day coming when he will delay no longer. Look at verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. It mentions here the mystery. We've talked about this before in Daniel. A mystery is something you can't know until somebody tells you. In many ways, God is mysterious. We can't know God unless he does what? Unless he speaks. He's got to reveal himself. The good news is God has revealed himself, hasn't he? In his word, in his written word, and in the living word of God, his son, Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself so we could know him. But there's another mystery in the New Testament that we see mentioned. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3. It's the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church is that God would take this Jewish book and he'd take this Jewish Savior, Messiah, and he would open the eyes of Gentiles like you and I to see the beauty of this Jewish Savior who died on the cross for our sins. And what God does is he calls out to us as we're out in the world. He speaks into our hearts and our lives and he reveals our sin and he reveals his salvation through this Jewish Savior and we trust in him and we know his life. That's why we're called the church, the ecclesia, the called out one. God, God calls out to us and we come. Now, do, does the Old Testament talk about the Messiah who would come and die? Yes, it does. Does the Old Testament talk about the Messiah who would rule and reign forever? Yes, it does. But the Old Testament views those two events as side by side. It views those events like two mountains in the distance. Have you ever driven out to Colorado and you see two mountains? They look like they're side by side. It looks like they're right together. But when you finally get up on them, what do you realize? There's this huge valley and gap in between them. God said he would come to die. In the Old Testament, he said Christ would rule and reign. What they couldn't see until they got up upon it is that those two mountains of God's truth, in between them, there would be a gap, a mystery known as what? Known as the church. And so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we deal primarily with the Jewish uh, people, and God calls out to them, and we see in the book of Acts, God calls out to them again, and they reject, and then God turns his attention to who? The Gentiles. The Bible goes to what? Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossae. And it goes to Africa, and Asia, and Australia, and Britain, and Europe, and Germany, and America, and Kansans. And he calls out, doesn't he? And he draws men and women to himself. That's the mystery. Now here's the question, because it says it here. When is the mystery finished? When is the mystery done? It's when God calls in all of his children. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I'll certainly not cast out, but I'll raise him up on the last day. 
This time of patience and delay will last until the very last of his children turn to him in faith and repentance. Wouldn't you like to be that last Christian? You pray, Jesus, come save me. I'm a sinner. And then you're in heaven. Then it ends. You'd say, why didn't I do this earlier? When the mystery is finished, and what is God doing today? He's delaying. It's what Peter talked about in 2 Peter when they said, he's, you keep saying he's going to come, but he hadn't come. And what did Peter say? No, he's just patient. He's delaying. Delays in life aren't normally a good thing. You ever get delayed in the airport? Not good. Never fun. Let me tell you, this delay of God is a good thing, amen? How many of you are glad God didn't come back 20 years ago? Amen? Because theologically, you would have been toast. But let me tell you what's even better than that. How many of you are glad today that God is still delaying? Because you know somebody in your life that doesn't know Jesus. And so God is in delay until the mystery is finished, until all that are his are drawn into him. Then look at verses 8 through 10 very quickly. And then the voice which I had heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. and It'll make your stomach bitter and in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. You know, I thought about uh, the picture of this strong angel representing God. And we've seen the immensity and the enormity and the fiercity. What if a voice from heaven had said, Go tell him to give you the book? I'd have said, No, thank you. Uh, he's pretty intimidating. It had to have been the voice of God for me to go ask for that book. But he says, go ask for the book. And so John goes, he's engulfed into the story, and he goes to this strong angel, give me the book, and the angel says, take it and eat it. Now, what did we talk about? What is the book? This book that we've talked about in Revelation, it's the completion of God's purposes and promises in history. It's God's judgment. It's God's judgment upon the world. And the angel tells him it'll be bitter in your stomach, sweet on your lips. He takes it and it's sweet on his lips and bitter in his stomach. What does it mean? I think it means two things. Number one, when we think about the judgment of God, it is to some extent, it's sweet because we long for God to come back and make things right and put down evil and reward the righteous. Don't we long for that day? Do you ever read the, the newspaper or watch the news on TV and say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And so to some extent, on one side of this, we long for God's judgment. We long for him to make things right. All these people have snubbed their nose at God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And it's sweet to us. We want his justice and his judgment. But on the other hand, 
the judgment of God is bitter in our stomachs. Because when we think about what God will do to a lost world, it should make us sick to our stomachs. I thought of Noah as I was writing this. Can you imagine Noah in the midst of building the ark, how many times he said, God, just judge them right now. How mad and angry he must have gotten at certain times, crying out for the justice of God. But then I thought about when the justice came and God shut the door. I wonder if Noah did hear the beating of those on the outside who were now experiencing the judgment of God. D.L. Moody, it was said of him that he could not listen to a message on hell without weeping. I get a lot of comments about why don't we preach more on hell. Well, listen, we don't back down from that issue. But we also don't take it lightly. Robert Murray McShane asked a preacher one time, what are you, what are you preaching or what did you preach this last Sunday? And the pastor said, I preached on hell. And Robert Murray McShane said, did it, did it pain you to do it? On one hand, we want God's justice. On the other hand, we know what that entails. I think that's how God feels. God doesn't desire for any to perish. But his justice demands that sin be punished. And so if you look at this very last verse here, verse 11, what does it say? And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Who needs to hear this? Who needs to hear this message of the impending judgment of God? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue needs to hear this message of the impending judgment of God. That every nation is coming down one day. Struck by the stone of Christ who will crush all the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ it's all coming down, and it's the knowledge of God's impending judgment that compels us to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, as I thought about this in Scripture, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us individually to trust Christ. That I love that, 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 that in many ways, it's not judgment and wrath that causes me to come to Christ. It's the overwhelming sense of his love in that he died for me on a cross to bear my sins so that now I could have salvation through faith in Jesus. It overwhelms me to the point that I can't help but run to Jesus for salvation. But on the other side, as believers in Jesus Christ, it is the knowledge of God's judgment that compels us to tell other people about Jesus. In fact, it was Paul who said, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Meaning, Paul says, knowing what is coming, 
we beg and plead with men and women to trust Christ today. And Paul said, I'd love to become accursed on your behalf. If I could just take your place, I would, because I want so badly for you to know Christ's salvation and not his judgment. Is that your heart towards the lost world around you? We long for God's judgment But it should be bitter in our stomachs knowing what's coming. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I can tell you that he loves you beyond measure. And he's a wonderful savior. And I pray that you would run to him. That he would become to you your refuge and your salvation. So that you one day would not know God's judgment but his salvation and his grace. And I think all of us who know Christ today could bear witness to the fact that he's a wonderful savior. Not just that he gives you the promise of eternity with him forever in heaven, but he becomes to you a sweet friend who guides you and loves you through life. Do we have a hymn? Somebody got on to me because on the 26th I didn't have a hymn. That's what I've created now. But we do. There's a song that I remember singing as I was thumbing through the hymn book. Audrey Meyer was a gifted pianist and a worship leader in the 1950s. She was working at her brother-in-law's church, Bethel Union Church in California. And on Christmas Sunday, she described the worship as being so sweet, as if Christ were there. And the pastor got up and quoted from Isaiah a verse that we associate with Christmas so often, and he said, his name shall be called Wonderful. And she said, that's all it took. And in the fly leaf of her Bible, she wrote a song that's not any longer just associated with Christmas. We sing it year round. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, he is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord, he's the great shepherd. The rock of all ages, almighty God is he. Bow down before him, love and adore him. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. Father, we thank you.
that you loved us and you sent Jesus. His name is wonderful. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see the wonderful nature of the Savior who came and bled and died on their behalf. Bore the wrath of God so that they wouldn't have to. Took their place. I pray that they would see the beauty of your love and the cross and your kindness would lead them to repentance. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that the knowledge and the truth of your impending judgment would move us to tell others about our Savior Jesus. That his name is wonderful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.